You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Revelation. We'll be in Revelation chapter 5 today. Last week we saw, uh, we began to look at Revelation chapter 4 and saw God the Father presented as the creator and why that makes him worthy of our worship. We said that last week, uh, God deserves and demands our worship based on who he is and what he has done as our holy, sustaining creator. We talked about the fact that sin in its essence is the abandonment of submitting to God as our creator, and the essence of salvation is God returning us to a state of properly acknowledging him for who he is, a state of true worship, pure worship, right worship. We talked about Romans 1 giving us that picture where mankind as the the creature has deviated from its responsibility to worship the creator, and instead we have elevated other portions of creation to be our gods, to be our objects of affection, to be our pursuits. And so ultimately salvation is about the creator restoring us to a state of proper worship to him. Um, and so I want to direct our attention back to Revelation chapter 4 because I want us to read the text for today, but I want us to read it in context of seeing this as one vision as these early churches would have originally understood chapter 4 and 5. So we'll start reading in verse 1 of Revelation 4. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is And is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the, throne, before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. As we looked at chapter 4 last week, we saw that we have a responsibility to praise God, to worship God, because He's king over everything, right? We have this picture of God the Father sitting upon this glorious throne. And there are other people, other beings, other creatures that are represented in leadership positions here. Their thrones surround that throne. But what we see by the end of chapter 4 is that they aren't staying seated in their thrones, right? They're, they're bowing down and worshiping the great throne. They're worshiping the one who sits upon that throne, and they're casting their crowns to the one who has all authority. We see all history being submitted to God here. Things that have to happen is what Revelation contains. Things that must happen according to God's plan. We see rewards being given to God or giving by God to his people and those rewards being given back to him. We see all authority being submitted to God, right? These, these other creatures that are described, we said we're not going to give them undue attention because they aren't concerned about themselves. They're concerned about worshiping God. And so we see all authority being submitted to God and all power flowing from God before his throne. We see lightning and thunder and quakes coming. These these natural powers that, that are uh, known to us on this earth, they are submitted to God and his authority. We see God being revered for his holiness and everything. He's set apart, uh, not only in his character, but also in his appearance, right? Um, John can't even describe him in words that would allow us to draw a picture of what he sees, right? It's, it's lights and it's colors that he uses to describe God the Father. God is to be praised in worship because he created and sustains everything. And our application from last week is that because history is the realization of his perfect will, we are to worship God in both attitude, word, and deed as we celebrate who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Revelation 4 is a great scene. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. It's a worshipful scene. But it certainly paves the way for us to better understand the scene in heaven as we get into Revelation chapter 5 and we begin to see Jesus come upon the scene. The God in son form um, is brought upon the scene and we begin to see the, 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 the attention and the focus of heaven drawn to him and the worship and praise given to him. And we see Jesus being revealed as our redeemer. In our summary sentence for today, God deserves and demands our worship based on his sacrificial work and global salvation as the only worthy redeemer. God deserves and demands our worship based on his sacrificial work and global salvation as the only worthy redeemer. For our kids, because God is our savior, he deserves 
our worship. We saw last week again, God is creator. He demands and deserves our worship because of who he is. His holiness demands it. What he has done, his creative work, the fact that he has brought us into existence means that our sole purpose is wrapped up in whatever he says that it is. And we see that our purpose is to be, uh, be worshipers of him. We're to enjoy his creation. We're to use his creation to show glory and honor to him. Today, we see that he deserves our worship because of his sacrificial work, his global salvation, the fact that he is the only worthy redeemer. Revelation chapter 5 creates a problem, a problem, a, a scroll that needs to be unrolled and the lack of one who is capable of doing so. And so there's a search for one who is worthy to do this. And Jesus is the only one to be found who possesses that worthiness. God deserves and demands our worship based on his sacrificial work and global salvation as the only worthy redeemer. All other religions focus on man becoming worthy before God, whereas Christianity readily admits that salvation is made available through the only worthy man, Jesus, who is the Son of God. Right? So all other religions are founded and grounded upon the idea that man has to become worthy to God. We've taught this to our middle school students at Trinity. Uh, We had them recite some of the catechism questions that we've taught them all year long, and one of them was tied to this fact that all Christians understand something far different than all other religions teach. All other religions teach that you have to be worthy before God. You have to rise above your circumstances, rise above your situations, and become good, become worthy before that God. Whereas Christianity teaches something far different, right? Christianity teaches that there is only one worthy man, and he happens to be God. He happens to be the Son of God revealed in human flesh. And so this chapter reminds us that there is no human being worthy enough to approach God the Father, right? We see Jesus very confidently, as he's revealed in heaven, very confidently step forward and take the scroll from the throne. Right? He's the only one worthy enough to approach the throne in such a manner to where he can take that scroll from God the Father. All other religions teach that we become worthy. Christianity teaches that we can never become worthy in and of ourselves, that it's through Christ and his work that we are able to stand before his presence one day and worship him forever. As far as an introduction goes, um, keep in mind that this book, this letter is written to these churches, um, and in understanding these churches, think of the church as a whole at that time. The church was in the midst of persecution and suffering with no real end in sight, and they needed a vision of God who controls the outcome of history, and that's exactly what God gives to them here in the form of chapter 5. The focus of chapter 5 is this scroll, this scroll that we learn about in verse 1 of chapter 5, a scroll and the search for the one who can open it. Some things that we can note immediately about this scroll, one that it's written on both sides. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. This would have been uncommon for a scroll. Uh, The scrolls that we found that contain um, the letters to the churches, the, the writings of Paul and Peter and others, they're written on one side and they're rolled up and there's nothing on the back side. This scroll is a little bit different in that it contains writing on both sides. It contains complete information. It contains lots of information. And I think it's significant to note, it contains information in such a way where no additions can be made. Whatever is written on this scroll, 
Whatever it contains, it's filled up. There's no more room. It's, it's got writing on front and back. There's no more room for anything to be added. Whatever God possesses in his hands here, it's a complete revelation that will be opened. Nothing can be added to it. In addition, this scroll is sealed. It's sealed. Its sealing shows that it's a temporary delay in whatever is going to happen from that scroll, that there's no premature openings of it. There's no premature happenings of whatever's contained there. Its sealing reminds us that there is a temporary delay sometimes in God's plans. The scroll contains events from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' final return. We're going to see this unfolding over the next several chapters. It's the, it's the unfolding of God's final plans, his final purposes. In fact, it may specifically be tied to Daniel chapter 12. Back in Daniel chapter 12, uh, Daniel is being given glimpses of the future and prophecies of things that must happen. But you'll remember in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, God says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book when? Until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. You skip down to verse 9. It says, uh, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And so there may be a tying here of what is being revealed in heaven that has been sealed for so long now being unfolded as Jesus comes forward as the one who is worthy to do so. The scroll contains events from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' final return. It's the plan of judgment and redemption. It's the destiny of the world, and it's held in the palm of God's hand. We said there's a problem that's presented here in chapter 5. The problem is that God's final plans and his purposes are awaiting something, and they are awaiting one who is worthy to reveal and to enact those purposes for mankind. So think in terms of God has plans and purposes in place, and he desires to, to bring those about, but he desires to do that through a man. He desires to do that for, through a man. And the only man that's worthy enough to do that is Jesus Christ. And so there's, a, there's an anticipation in heaven building. Who is one who can unfold this and make this happen? And Jesus is shown to be that individual, that man, that God-man who can do so. We can tie it to the fact that God needs Jesus to accomplish this because the fact that he is worthy, we're reminded of his worthiness because of things that he's already accomplished and done on behalf of God's plan. And that makes him worthy of doing this. The problem is that we need someone, if, if, if these are God's plans that are coming to come about, we need somebody who's powerful enough to do it, but we also need someone who is good and just and right to enact these plans as well. And Jesus certainly meets the criteria for that. So we jump into to the text. And number one in our notes, we worship Jesus as the executor of history. We worship Jesus as the executor of history. It says that he saw in his right hand of him who was sitting on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll? And break its seals, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
We worship Jesus as the executor of history. He is the one that can open this scroll. He is the one that can see to it that all the plans and purposes of God are fulfilled in ways that God has desired. For our kids, Jesus controls all of history. Number one, no created being possesses the worth needed to accomplish all of God's plans. No created being possesses the worth needed to accomplish all of God's plans. This this summoning goes forth from this great angel. Who is worthy to reveal and carry out this plan? Who is worthy to open this scroll? And we've seen some majestic creatures in heaven, right? We've seen these, these creatures that have been described in ways that are hard for us to even comprehend. And there's silence when this question is asked, right? All these majestic creatures that have been created in heaven to worship God are not worthy enough to do this. All of the great men, all of the great saints that would have surrounded this throne, men from the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings, individuals that are highlighted in the, in the hall of faith for us in Hebrews, all of these men have to keep their mouth shut, right? There's no Abraham, there's no Isaac, there's no Jacob that steps forward to approach the throne and to say, I will fulfill those plans. I will see to it that all of your plans are accomplished in the way that you desire. Because as these individuals begin to assess themselves, they would have realized, I can't be counted upon at all times, right? Like, like I can't be counted upon to carry out God's plans to the fullest at all times because I've fallen short. In my time on this earth, I fell short. And so this call, this summoning goes out and no one can answer because all created beings lack the worth needed to do this. All of the majestic creatures fall short. All of mankind falls short. Number two, it's only Jesus who fulfills all prophecies. Only Jesus is worthy enough to approach the Father. John begins to weep because he feels as though maybe no one can be found to do this. And that means great things because if no one is worthy to do this, then God's plans can't come to fruition, right? All these great promises that have been made to the churches in uh, the beginning here of Revelation, these seven churches, they can't bank upon these promises if no one can unfold these plans. If no one can carry out these purposes, then these promises are for naught. All these prophecies and promises that, that God's people have been looking forward to, they will fail. And so John begins to weep because no one is found to do this. And then one of the elders says, you don't have to weep anymore. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and the scroll can be opened. Jesus fulfills prophecies. First of all, the prophecy about being from the, the tribe of Judah, specifically the lion of the tribe of Judah. You'll remember not too long ago, we were in Genesis chapter 49, and as Jacob is giving blessings to his children, we highlighted the fact that Jacob makes a specific, or uh, yeah, Jacob makes a specific promise to Judah. It says in Genesis 49 verse 8, if you want to jot down this prophecy, Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's binding his foil to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. 
He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. You remember we talked about this and we talked about this anticipation of someone to come from Judah's line who would be this great ruler, this great king who would lead God's people into a time of prosperity that they had never known before. And this anticipation began to build from this time forward, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who would he be? When would he arrive? And the elder says, you don't have to cry anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah has been revealed. He is here. He is worthy to do such a task. The idea of him being a lion shows his power. But not only that, it's revealed that he's the root of David. He's the root of David. And this can be tied uh, to Old Testament prophecies found in the book of Isaiah. The idea of, uh, of Jesus or the Messiah coming from the line of David and being a king that extended that line was something that was anticipated and hoped for in Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he see, what his eyes see or decide, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. We're gonna see Jesus comes and does every one of these things in the book of Revelation. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing, shall, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be the full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people and begins to list those nations. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. In Jeremiah chapter 33, in uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 32, Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41. Jesus is this root of David. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 says... Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus confounds them, confuses them, because he begins to help them understand, how can this one be greater than David if he's simply a son of David? He implies that there has to be something greater than him simply being a man that came from David, right? He highlights the fact that he is David's Lord. He is his ancestor's Lord by being both God and man. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. Back in the Old Testament, another prophecy given to David's descendants, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
verses 12 through 16. This is partly about Solomon, but ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Talking about Solomon, right? Because Jesus doesn't come from the body of David. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. That's talking about Solomon, right? Because Jesus doesn't have iniquity. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So some of that's about Solomon, but specifically he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son talking about this descendant of David. And if you skip ahead to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter one, verse five, talking about Jesus, it says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So you read in second Samuel, you're like, oh, that's talking about Solomon, right? That's talking about David's son, Solomon. And yet the author of Hebrews says, in a mysterious way, it's also talking about Jesus, that Jesus is the root of David. He is the fulfillment of all these prophecies regarding the Messiah. So Jesus steps forward in this scene in heaven. He is the lion of Judah that was promised in Genesis. He is the root of David that was promised not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. He fulfills all these prophecies. And the implication is that we worship him as the executor of history. We worship Jesus because he alone is capable of carrying out all of the plans of God for his own glory and our good. Jesus possesses the power and the the holiness to carry out the scroll, the scroll that's going to be unfolded and and we're going to see the plans of God. Only Jesus is capable of doing this in such a way where God receives glory and God's people receive good. There's no injustice in Jesus. There's no personal agenda within Jesus. Jesus fulfills the plans and the purposes of his father. He did that in his life here on this earth, and he will do that for all eternity. He will bring this earth and this history and this timeline that we understand to an end, and it will result in the glory of God and the goodness of God's people. Why would we not worship this Jesus, right? We worship him because he's capable of carrying out these plans for God's glory and our good. John Piper says the lion gets the victory. And we're going to see this as it unfolds now in Revelation. The lion gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. Because Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. He has the right to bring the world to an end for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Jesus is being described here as a lion, the lion of Judah. And then when we see Jesus, we expect to see a lion. We expect to see some type of powerful, mighty creature. And what we see is something far different, right? It says in verse 6, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He's a lion-like lamb, is how we're seeing him described here in Revelation chapter 5. We worship Jesus as the worthy victor. We worship him as the worthy victor. He's now described as a lamb, a lamb who has earned a great victory. 
For our kids, Jesus earns the greatest victory. Jesus is described as a lamb, a slain lamb, a standing slain lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. He approaches the throne, he approaches his father, and he takes the scroll from the right hand. And when he had taken the scroll, he begins to receive worship from all these creatures that have been worshiping the father. They begin to sing out, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. They shall reign on the earth. Why do we worship him? First of all, he's the slain lion-like lamb. He's the slain lion-like lamb. He wins the victory through unconventional means. And what we've seen all through Scripture, and I'm just going to give you these verses and I encourage you to write them down so you can kind of go back and see, but there's a progression of the lamb analogy from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This, this anticipation of, of a lamb and a lamb being needed. It kind of starts in, in the garden, right? When Adam and Eve stand before God and, and they're in need of a sacrifice because they should be killed for their sin. God kills an animal. We're not told exactly what kind of animal. We think lamb because of all the other analogies to the lamb, but we're not sure exactly what animal was killed. But the animal's killed, the blood is shed, the skin is given to them as clothing, as a temporary payment for their sin. That progression continues into Genesis chapter 22, right? When Abraham takes his son Isaac, and Isaac asks the question, Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? What does Abraham say? God will provide. God will provide. We fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 12. And we begin to see the Passover, right? And, and death is coming to Egypt and death passes through the city. And it's only those who take the lamb and shed the blood and put it on their doorpost that can be spared from God's wrath. We fast forward to Isaiah 53, the passage that's known as the suffering servant. And we see Jesus who in the future would come and would be slaughtered like a lamb. We see in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist proclaiming, here is the lamb, right? The lamb is finally upon us. The sacrificial lamb has shown up. And then 1 Peter 1, 19 describes the slain lamb, the one who has died in our place. So you see this progression of the lamb analogy all through scripture leading up to this culmination of the book of Revelation. And kind of moving forward in Revelation, Jesus is just constantly referred to as the lamb. The saints find victory through the blood of the lamb, right? He's just constantly being seen as the lamb, this warrior type lamb. And it's hard to even kind of grasp our minds about, around a lamb ruling with authority, right? Because you can't think of any sports teams that use the lamb as their mascot, right? You're thinking Jesus should be described as, a, as an eagle, right? Or a, or a lion or a bear or a tiger, something that is ferocious, something that comes with authority. And we see him coming as a lamb, we see him coming in humility and sacrificial service. And that's how he wins this victory. Completely submitted to God the Father's plans. He's the slain like lamb. Secondly, he is the resurrected like, or he's the resurrected lion like lamb. He's the resurrected lion like lamb. John says, I see this lamb and it's a lamb that is slain looking. And we know that from Jesus' glorified body when he stands before his disciples, they knew it was him, right? He still had scars in his hands, right? He could, still, he could still show that this is the same body that I had. I'm the same Jesus who died on the cross. 
And so I think we should fully expect that we would be able to see the resurrected lamb in heaven as though he was slain. That's what John sees. It's a slain lamb, but it's not a lamb that's lying down dead, right? It's a standing slain lamb, which is a nod to his resurrection. He is a living lamb. Yes, he's a lamb that died, but yes, he is a lamb that lives forevermore. He's not only a a slain lamb and a resurrected lamb, he's an omnipotent lion-like lamb. He's described as having seven horns. Now, if you Google this image, there are people that have drawn this to a T as to what is being described here. And again, I promise you, it is is a horrific-looking animal that you would not be prone to glory in and worship in. So again, I think this is a symbolic picture of what is actually being seen here. We've talked about the, 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 the numbers being symbolic, that seven is a number of completion. And so the horn in Scripture represents power, specifically power attributed to great kings and rulers. And so the picture here of Jesus having seven horns is a picture of complete power, right? Complete leadership, complete authority. He has perfect power. But he not only has these horns, he has seven eyes, right? Seven eyes. He's an omniscient lion-like lamb. He's a lamb who can see everything, knows everything, has perfect sight, perfect knowledge. He knows what we go through and he can do something about it. Second Chronicles, verse 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. That's such a comforting verse, right? We have a God, we serve a Jesus who has perfect vision, perfect eyes, perfect knowledge, and that that knowledge, that omniscience, it runs to and fro over the earth so that it can support those who belong to him. He's an omniscient lion-like lamb. Number five, he's the omnipresent lion-like lamb. He's the omnipresent lion-like lamb. It says that he also possesses the seven spirits of God. Back in Revelation chapter 5. Seven horns and seven eyes. And those seven eyes are representative of the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth. Perfect presence. He's everywhere. He knows everything. He sees everything. And he has the power to do whatever he wants to with all of that knowledge. The implication is that we worship Jesus because his death was purposeful. His plan is global and his goal is thorough. So this is how Jesus is described, right? And he's in that description. He goes to the throne, takes the scroll from the right hand of God the Father who's seated on the throne, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. So Jesus steps forward, demonstrates that he believes that he's worthy to do this, and he is acknowledged in his worthiness. And these creatures begin to cry out, here's why you're worthy, because you were slain, You died, but it was a purposeful death. What did it do? By your blood, you ransomed people for God, right? You died sacrificially. You died in humility. You died purposefully. Your death had meaning. It had reason, and it died to save the souls of mankind. 
It was a purposeful death. His plan, though, is shown to be global because he does it for every tribe, language, people, and nation. He dies to redeem, but he dies to redeem people with no boundaries. There's no boundaries to those he plans to save. It fulfills that promise to Abraham that we talked about in Genesis. He says, you're going to be a blessing to all nations, Abraham. The Messiah is going to come through you, and you will be a blessing to all nations because God's people will come from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. These creatures say, you're worthy because your death was meaningful. Your plan is global. Number 10, verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. I mean, you have to picture glorification here. How could sinful man ever be made into a kingdom and into a group of priests that would rule and reign with Christ, right? You can't take the evil of the evil and rule and reign with them. There has to be a transformation that takes place. This promise, you'll remember, was given to the nation of Israel back in Exodus 19. As there before Mount Sinai, God tells them, you will be a kingdom and priest to me and you'll reign with me. And now that's applied to every nation, not just the nation of Israel. God's plans are fully revealed now. And we find that the people of God are not tied to a specific skin color, a particular background, a group of people. It's open, it's wide open, no boundaries. And they say, you're worthy to be worshipped. You're worthy to do this because of what you've already accomplished. That leads us into verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And if you take myriads of myriads, it's like, it ends up being like 100 million in number, right? Like, so it's basically just saying like everybody. Like everybody you can think of is worshiping here. And they're saying with a loud voice, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Number three, we worship Jesus as the unrivaled son of God. We worship Jesus as the unrivaled Son of God. For our kids, Jesus is God, making him the greatest. The paradox here is that you have all of these same people worshiping God the Father in chapter 4, right? And they're saying similar things to God the Father, and then Jesus shows up, and he doesn't usurp that authority. He doesn't steal glory from God the Father. What we're seeing is John is showing us that God the Father and God the Son are equal. They're equal in their divinity and equal in their worthiness to receive our worship. So number one, his divinity means that he receives all glory. The living creatures and the elders respond exactly the same to Jesus as the Father. In 1 Chronicles um, chapter... 29, verse 10. Listen to David and his worship uh, sequence here. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatest in the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. You find some of the same wordage used there as in the book of Revelation here about Jesus, and this is about God the Father. So it it makes no sense for anyone to try to deny the deity of Jesus. Jesus revealed himself as God, but certainly heaven cries out that Jesus is God, right? That he's on equal footing as his father, as he receives the same type of worship, the same type of glory. They are giving him the same type of worth that they gave to God the Father in Revelation chapter 4. And all these qualities that are listed here about Jesus, they can all be tied to other New Testament passages. The idea of his power, we can see in 1 Corinthians 1.24, and for the sake of time, we won't read through these. But in 1 Corinthians 1.24, we see Jesus' power. We see his wealth in 2 Corinthians 8.9 and Ephesians 3.8. We see his wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1.24, his strength in Ephesians 6.10. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, his honor in Hebrews 2.9, his glory in John 1.14, his blessing in Romans 15.29. His divinity makes him worthy of all glory. But not only that, number two, his divinity means he will remain glorious forever. They say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But we're not going to lose interest in him tomorrow, right? Like this isn't a a one-time scene where we're acknowledging him and then he's going to fail and he's going to lose the right to be worshiped and we're going to turn our attention to the next greatest thing, right? This isn't a fair weather situation. You don't get to be a fan of Jesus and then lose interest in Jesus because he fails to live up to expectations, right? He's not a sports team that we cheer for and then he lets us down and we say, you know what? I'm going to root for somebody else because this just always breaks my heart. Jesus lives up to the expectations, right? Because it goes into this next song and it says, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. He's always going to be worthy of this glory. He's infinitely glorious, so we never exhaust reasons to glory in him. We worship Jesus in response to the Father bestowing on him all glory. God the Father wants this. God the Father has set his son up for this. Philippians 2.10, we see Jesus in all of his humility. Our seventh graders at uh, Trinity memorize this. We see Jesus in all of his humility. And then we see God the Father's response to that, that he exalts him and bestows on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses Jesus. And they confess Jesus, they give him the name that's above every name and that's Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? God the Father is glorified when all of his creation is worshiping his son. And that's the picture we see. God the Father desires this. God the Father wants this. The scroll and all the plans and the purposes, they are designed for Jesus to get glory. And God the Father is gloried in that. We're reminded in Exodus 20, Psalms 146, that God has created everything in heaven and everything in earth and everything under the earth. Those realms where nothing was found worthy to open this scroll, God creates all of it He declares to us it's not worthy of our worship. 
right? He says, you don't worship any of that stuff because nothing was found in those realms to open this scroll. Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given, God says, don't make any graven image that resembles anything about creation because none of it is worthy in the way Jesus is. We worship Jesus because God the Father has designed all of history to culminate in Jesus' glory. Our application. Number one, God's plan on earth as it is in heaven. That's part of the Lord's prayer, right? Matthew 6, 10. We are to pray <coughs> that God's will would be accomplished on earth as it's being accomplished in heaven. Well, I think we're seeing what God's plan is. We're seeing what God's will is. It's for all creatures to submit to his glory and worship. So Jesus says, pray like this. Pray that my will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will is certainly being accomplished in heaven right now as all of his creatures are, give, or all of his creatures are giving worship and submitting to his glory. So that's God's plan here on earth. And we're seeing in heaven that there's great rejoicing when his plan is being realized, when, when the gospel is being emphasized and when people are being saved from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Heaven says, that's worth singing about. That's worth glorying in. The fact that the lamb, the lion-like lamb, is winning people to him. So as, as, as earthlings here on this earth, we can mirror what's happening in heaven by pursuing the same plan here on this earth, right? We're, we're the agents. We're the ones that God has chosen to bring about the salvation of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, to produce this scene in heaven where this worship experience takes place, right? God chooses to incorporate us into his plan so that we can rule and reign with him, and he wants to use us to bring people to him so that more worship happens, Number two, we bring him glory by resisting the urge to worship things and instead use things to point others to his ultimate glory. So we talked this morning, question-wise, how can we mirror in heaven, how can we mirror here on earth what is happening in heaven? And that's where people are giving Jesus acknowledgement of his glory. How do we do that here on this earth outside of Sundays when we sing and worship a little bit through song? So we can mirror that together you can mirror that individually throughout your week. But how do we do that? How do we continue to do that? And I think the picture here in heaven was, hey, we've looked at everything. Nothing's worthy. Nothing's worthy but Jesus to receive our worship. And oftentimes we look at everything and we pick out a few things that we think are worthy of our worship. We identify things like money and jobs, success, relationships. We identify these things and we say, you know what? This is extremely important to me. I'm going to pour everything into this. And it becomes an unhealthy attention in our life. And the correct response is to say, oh, you know what? Money's great because money allows me to show Jesus's worth to people around me. I'm going to use my money and I'm going to make a lot of it right? Like there's nothing in scripture that says, don't make a lot of money. I'm going to make a lot of it so I can give away a lot of it and so I can use it for kingdom purposes. I'm going to take care of my family because that's, that's worthy and honorable. So I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to make money to care for my family. 
but I'm not going to elevate money and the things that I can purchase as though it looks like I worship these things to people around me. Instead, I want to make so much money that it makes no sense why I don't have more stuff. For people to know that I've worked hard and I have every right to own and possess other things that people would possess that make the same type of money as me, except I don't. I've given it away. I've done different things with it, right? For our singles to say, I want to be married, not simply to satisfy my desires. I want to be married because it gives a picture of Christ and the church. And so I want to take a wife or I want to to join myself to a husband so that that picture gets lived out for those that witness my life. They can see Christ and the church through the visible example of our marriage. If that's your goal and perspective about marriage, then far be it from any of us to deter anybody in this room from pursuing somebody or being pursued. The only time that becomes an issue is when you've elevated that relationship to God-like status in our life. And now that's the most important thing versus people coming to know Jesus because I'm married. Right? If our marriages are viewed as tools to lead people to Jesus, then pursue it with everything that you have. Pursue money with everything that you have to make much of Jesus. That's the picture here. That stuff's not worthy of our worship, but it's certainly useful as tools of worship to point people to Jesus so that more people worship Jesus because I made money and I gave it away. More people worship Jesus because I took a a spouse and I loved her or loved him to the point that I gave a picture of Christ in the church and people came to know Jesus because of that relationship. That's how we mirror what's happening in heaven here on earth. We identify everything and say, you know what? Not worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my worship, but he's given me things to worship him with. And I want to use those to the greatest extent to bring the most people possible into that worshipful experience that he saved me to. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this picture that you've given us in heaven. And we certainly long to be there one day. We certainly long to be in your presence where we don't have to read descriptions of what's taking place in heaven. We can be a part of what's happening in heaven. God, we long for the day where we are completely free and clear from sin and temptation and death. And we can glory in you as you've created and designed us to do. Father, in the meantime, I pray that we would be faithful worshipers of you here on this earth. Help us to look around and see things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, and deem them unworthy in the same way they were deemed unworthy in chapter five. They're not worthy of our worship, but they do have value. They do have purpose. God, help us to use the things that you've given to us as things that we can cast back your way, tools of worship that draw other people to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.